Hey, this is Jen, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adults Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. But the scripture we're going over tonight comes from Matthew 6, and it's verses 7 through 13. So I'll give you a second to get there. And I'll invite you guys to stand as we read this. Starting in verse 7, it says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You all can take a seat. I'm good here. Can you all hear me? Perfect, sweet. Uh, If this is your first time joining us, welcome. Uh, You should know we've been going through a sermon series this summer called uh, The Upside Down Kingdom, so it's right there behind me, Um, which is focused on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if you're part of a house church, uh, you also know that we've been walking through this together, not just here in these gatherings, but as a community this summer. And we named it The Upside Down Kingdom because uh, the truth is, not many people seem to be quite familiar about the kingdom that Jesus preached about. And and seldom do they remember that this kingdom of God is the complete opposite, upside down, if you will, of the culture and society we live in. And so if you were here last month, if not, you can listen on the podcast, but I'll just tell you we talked about the Beatitudes, which starts off the Sermon on the Mount. And we learn that entrance into the kingdom of God begins with us understanding how we as humans We're just needy and so desperate, whether you like to admit it or not. But that need and desperation can only be met and satisfied by our God. And so disciples of Jesus are entering into the kingdom of God desperate. But then later in the sermon, uh, Jesus begins to reveal an interesting, not interesting, but an important figure within the kingdom of God. Jesus reveals the king of this kingdom to his disciples. And that kingdom, and that king is God. Jesus reveals this king to us so that we would know who exactly we are in relationship with. Because what is it to be in the kingdom without knowing who's leading you? What is it to be in the kingdom if you don't know the king? So there's this uh, beautiful painting by a Dutch painter named Rembrandt, and it'll show up right here. And this painting depicts a scene found in the Gospel of Luke. And, and Rembrandt called this piece, uh, he named it after the parable it is about. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And now this painting is a little over 350 years old, but I think it will speak quite loudly to us today. Just take a moment to look at it. Take it in. Notice the details. Notice the position of the various people here. And so the son that we're going to talk about in a moment 
is right there on his knees. Do you see how he's dressed? His clothes are pretty tattered. He's got a hole on the right side. It's before it was cool to have ripped clothes. His, uh, his right shoe is worn thin. His left shoe can't even stay on. He's pretty pathetic. But notice how his body is positioned. He's kneeled before his father. That's who is the one holding him. And he's kneeled before his father and he just kind of rests his head on the father's lap. It's almost like he's clinging and really holding on to the father's leg. He's just collapsed there. And what is the father doing? He's holding him. Knelt down, he wraps both his arms around his son and just lets him rest there. Does this describe your relationship with God? How would you define your relationship with God if we were to ask you today? Would you have much of an answer? Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, listen, I'm, just, I'm spiritual but not religious. Or, or maybe you're here and you're, you, you believe in a higher being but, but you're not really that comfortable with naming that being God. Or maybe you'd say that God has abandoned you and you're just hoping tonight you'd find him. Or maybe you'd say you're maybe in a strong or decent relationship, but you're constantly worried that you'll disappoint God and that he'll just, once he knows enough about you, he'll reject you. So as we jump back into the Sermon on the Mount tonight, we're gonna be talking about intimacy with God. And intimacy in, in really any relationship is a sense of being close with someone. It's beyond the sexual. You don't need sexuality to be intimate with someone. Intimacy is what we call the experience of knowing and being known by another person. And, and we really, we, we love the idea of intimacy. We actually crave intimacy because at our core, we desire to be known. Even if the idea of intimacy scares you, most of us would still want access to it instead of never having it at all. But what I've come to realize is that we as people choose to often accept and give counterfeit and cheap versions of intimacy. And we do this because we believe this lie that you can't afford the real thing. And so for some reason, we believe that our painful realities, if brought to the light, would disqualify us from real, real intimacy. And it just happens daily for us. Like imagine if you gave someone the real answer to them asking you, how are you doing today? How are you doing today? I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. Well, that's a bogus answer because that's not really how you're doing, is it? To have intimacy would require you to respond to this person with an honest and vulnerable answer to give the people around you a chance to know you and to love you. But we're so convinced that if we answer honestly, we'll be met with rejection. And so we just tell them, I'm doing great. Or you sidestep it all together and you just tell them the plans you have for the weekend. Or if you feel guilty about lying, you just, but you still have this desire to release the pain of your week, you're like, you know, 
it's been a hard week. But as that lump in your throat begins to rise, you move to a half-truth and you're like, it's, it's been a hard week, but you know, it just, it is what it is. When the truth is that it's been a hard week, every week, for longer than you'd like to actually admit. And so this course of action that we take to hide what's inside leads to an intimacy deficiency, which produces shallow relationships with ourselves and with others. It seems that we don't really know how to pursue real intimacy because none of us or most of us have actually ever experienced the real thing. And so this sets us off into a journey of of seeking intimacy wherever we can find it. And what we find is that all the ways that we seek intimacy often don't produce the thing we we want and desire. And so we just settle for cheap intimacy. And then what happens is with God, we we take all these experiences that we have with one another that are cheap and broken and we try to apply it to God and then we wonder, why do I feel like he's never here? You just have this superficial relationship with a God who seeks to know you deeply. And then you're left wondering and questioning whether you can even trust him to begin with. So what I would offer you tonight is that what we need more than anything is to experience real live intimacy, not the cheap stuff. What we long for is to find someone who can fully know us while still simultaneously fully love us. So I'm gonna invite you to open up your Bibles again. We'll be in Matthew 6, as Ryan said. And as we go through this passage, I want us to focus on how Jesus teaches about intimacy with God. Excuse me. Now, if you were to read all of chapter six, you'd see that Jesus talked about three different spiritual disciplines. In verse two, he talks about giving. In verse five, he talks about praying. And then in verse 16, he talks about fasting. Now, Jesus brings these practices into focus because fasting, giving, and praying are all meant to provide spaces for Christians where we can grow in intimacy with God. But so often, we turn these practices of real intimacy into places of performance. But when these spiritual acts are done as performance, do you know what it leads to? Cheap, shallow relationship with God. And I think this happens so easily for many of us because it's become quite normalized. Here's an example, and I mean to offend nobody. But when our prayers and the revelation we get when we read scripture begins to pepper our Instagram feeds and Twitters more than they fall at the feet of Jesus, we have a problem. And it's okay. It's okay if you posted a verse on your story today that really moved you. But I only mention that as a caution for you to pay attention to how often we feel the need to do this because what can happen is is that we end up using our times with God to produce something that we can then sell and peddle to all these people to think that we're actually in a deeper relationship with Jesus than we actually are. Instead of just being with him, to just be with him. And so Jesus here Right before he starts, he's pleading with us to not turn these holy practices into some spiritual playtime because God has given us himself to be in communion with, not to play with, to have relationship with him, to know his thoughts and to know who he is. 
So with that in mind, let's turn back again to verse seven. Jesus says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus begins this section by pointing out what not to do in prayer. He says, when you pray, don't be like the Gentiles. Some of your translations might say, don't be like the pagans. Now listen, Jesus doesn't have anything in particular against Gentiles because uh, everyone in this room would be considered a Gentile unless both your parents are of Jewish descent, but I would argue most of them, probably not. So welcome Gentiles. <laughs> so he doesn't have a problem because then we're the church. So now he, is it his problem with Gentiles? No. What Jesus is getting at here is this, is that Jesus knew the Greek religious system that the pagans and the Gentiles would often practice because Remember, Israel and the time was, was conquered by Rome and, and Rome was conquered by, by Greek thought. And so the Greeks had many gods, Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Hades, Apollos. There's only just some of the many gods they had. And the thing about these gods is that they were fickle and distant. The, they, the Greeks believed these gods to be powerful, but these gods were always at war with one another. So, so when the Greeks prayed to these gods, there was never a promise that someone would be on the other end to listen because they were busy. So the only way to get their attention was to ask and ask and ask again, again and again. It didn't really matter how you asked. It didn't matter if, if your request was sincere. It didn't matter even if you liked that particular God. You just prayed hoping that someone would be on the other end. And so Jesus says, Stop. Don't do that because the God you pray to, Yahweh, he's not like these distant and fickle gods. In fact, he says in verse eight, this God knows what you need before you even speak it. You see, the way we pray reveals what we believe to be most true about God. So these Greek Gentiles, they, had, they believed they had to manipulate and pester their gods. So they believed about them, so that's how they prayed. They, they believed that they had to walk on eggshells and not ask for too much. They believed that they had to please these gods in any way possible form to worship them. And as long as their gods were happy, they wouldn't have to worry about suffering. So that's why they just threw these empty phrases as a way to keep these gods happy. There was no relationship between the Greeks and their gods, so there was no need for intimacy. I ask you tonight, how, how do you pray? What does your prayer say about your relationship with God? Because sometimes disciples of Jesus look just like these Greek Gentiles, right? Some of us here believe that God is bothered with our requests, so you only pray to him when it's something big. Or some of us believe that God will withhold good from us, so you just naturally you're gonna just try and manipulate him to giving you what you want. But Jesus says, listen, God the Father He's not like these pitiful man-made gods. But the only way you're gonna know that is if you know who he is. And that's why intimacy with God is so fundamentally crucial because intimacy carves into our mind and our hearts who it is we're in relationship with. Without intimacy, what's gonna happen is you're gonna grow frustrated and resentful because we're gonna keep coming to God in prayer on our terms and expect him to do the things that we want in the way that we expect it. And God says, no, I'm not gonna comply for that because that's not what prayer is about. 
If prayer is simply about God granting our requests, then we miss God altogether. God is someone you are meant to know and love and prayer positions us to know who our Father is. That's the whole point of the Lord's Prayer. It's to become, for you to become well-versed in who God is. So verse nine through 13, our Father in heaven, you've heard it many times, it's called the Lord's Prayer. And now I recognize that some of you come from faith traditions where our Father was done at every mass or every service that right now it feels more just like an empty pile of words. But Jesus says these words, he gives us these words so that we would know and remember who God the Father is. Notice how he begins the prayer. What does he say? It's not a trick question. It's right there. Our Father. Is that how you typically start your prayers? And even if it is, what, what proceeds right after that? Hey, God. Hey, Dad. Um, I need this and this and this and this. If you could throw that in, that'd be nice. And that'd be nice too. Is that how Jesus tells us to pray? No, he says this, he goes, God is our father, our father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then finally, give us this day our daily bread. But even notice that in that, he doesn't say give us more than we need. He doesn't say I'm lacking. And so you better show up, God. He says, God, I trust that you're gonna show up. But you can't pray the Lord's prayer if you don't know who the father is. I mean, you can pray it, but you won't believe it. So instead, what does he say? God, you're our father. When was the last time you meditated on that? Better yet, do you even think that about him? Like, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about God? Do you think father? Or is it tyrant? Test. some guy in the sky. No, the almighty, the absolute, the eternal and great God with all his power and his might and his majesty, that God who is a consuming fire, the same God who says he's light and in whom there is no darkness at all, he looks at us despite all his qualifications out of all the names he could be given and he says, I want you to call me father. What the heck? If you read all of your Old Testament, you're going to see no one calls God Father, at least not in a personal way. But then once Jesus comes on to, to do his earthly ministry, guess what's the most commonly used description or name for God that he uses? Father. You see, Father is a term of relationship, the term of endearment. When God reveals himself to people, he does it with a name so that people would know how to relate to him. And in Hebrew, the word for father is, and you might have heard this before, is Abba. And it carries this dual image of both daddy and father. And you need to have both, because otherwise you have daddy God, and we ain't about that here. No, no, no. When we say daddy, what he means is this. If that means that when things happen, which they will, we get to run to him like a little kid who scraped his knee and said, this, this hurts. It's that child, childish wonder of like, I don't care what this looks like. I need help, so I'm gonna run to my dad. 
And then there's the father part where it's, Dad, I want to be just like you when I grow up. I want to learn from you. I, I want to be like you. I want to know what you know. I want to do what you do because I like you and I love you and I know you love me. And so I want to be like you. That's Abba. Respect and intimacy all in one. Is this how you see God? And we wonder why sometimes we come to God with such apathy and indifference. Because many of us came to be disciples of Jesus because we recognized, listen, we were in need, we were desperate for help, and then along the way, that's all you ever saw God as, a get-out-of-jail-free card, a key to a better life. But then Jesus begins the prayer not by requesting things from the Father, but instead he begins with our Father in a way to internally recalibrate our hearts to know who it is that we're talking about. If God was just a person who grants our every desire, all that it would make you is beggars. But if God is our Father, it makes us children. And knowing that God is our father and that we are his children is of massive importance because you know what a, do you know what a parent gives to their child always? Genuine, real intimacy. To be fully known and to be fully loved. And that is so much better and beautiful and weighty than just seeing God as someone who can come in and, and give you some mere scraps. You know, God wants you to know who he is. He's our father. And so sometimes we have this like, sometimes we are like kids, you know? We're like, God, you don't get me. Like, I, maybe I, I, I want to trust you, but you don't, you don't understand what it is to be me. Like, I know you've been doing this God thing for a long time, but, but I'm me and no one else can get me, so how can you get me? So it just feels like we're always forever 13, right? But this is what Psalm 139 says. And this, this psalm was written by King David. And he writes this in verses 13 through 16. And as I say, it might sound familiar to you. He says this, God, you've formed me, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You see, to receive intimacy from God is to know that he knows you fully and that he loves you. And so sometimes we come to him like, you don't know me, God. He goes, really? I formed you. Like, I didn't just like form you. I knitted you. Have you ever been around someone who knits? Do you know why mostly older people do it? It's because they got patience that we don't got. It takes time and intention and craft. And the King David is saying, when God knitted us in our mother's room, he had this vision of a masterpiece. That's what Ephesians 2.10 tells us, that we are God's masterpiece. And so because God formed us and knitted us with intention, he means, that means he knows everything about you. He knows how you work. He knows what makes you tick. He knows what makes you sad. He knows what makes you joyful. He knows all that you are. There's nothing that you can hide from him. But I'm here to tell you that that's okay that if he knows you. Because while the people in this room, and I'll admit it, there are people in this room, there are times where people have confessed their sins to me and I'm like, mm, I don't know if I can be friends with you anymore. God's like, tell me everything. Because I've seen it all. 
and I consider you my masterpiece. He's the one who sees it all. And his demeanor towards you is not disgust or rejection, but of compassion and love. God is the only one who can see all of us and for all that we are and still walk away happily saying, this is my kid. It's clear God wants intimacy with us, but the question really is, do you want intimacy with him? Will you get to know him instead of just asking him for things? Can I just for a moment just share with you what I've come to know about God as father? You okay with that? He has this really nagging habit of telling me the truth all the time. But he also has this really annoyingly beautiful habit that when I run, he comes after me. That when I decide to come back, he's there waiting. And not like waiting in the distance. He's like, here. And I'm like, oh, hey. He's trustworthy. He loves me. And is overjoyed when I decide to be in his presence. I find that he always has time for me. This is the God we pray to. This is the Father we pray to. Let's have an honest conversation. I know there are people in this room where some of you are just like, you're a freaking liar, Caesar. I get it, not all of us had good dads. Some people here had fathers who beat them, who belittled them, who abandoned them, who sexually abused them, who manipulated them. Just father and name only. So when you hear me say God is our father, I imagine you instantly think, why in the world would you think that's any comfort to me? I'm sorry. I'm sorry that your father did that to you. But if you're sitting here and you're, you had a father who should have showed you love and showered you with intimacy, but only met you with horrible shortcomings. God wants to rewrite that story for you. Because when God says that he is father, it's because he is the true representation of what a parent is supposed to look like. We run the mistake where we size God up and put him in the same category as our imperfect fathers. But God is wanting to show us that there is no one like him. He is the perfect father. Ergo, the Lord's prayer. Jesus wants us to show who our father is and how perfectly great and amazing and unlikable. No, he's likable. It's unlike anybody else. <laughs> but I wonder how many of us believe that we can receive this type of intimacy. Because most of us haven't experienced this type of intimacy. It feels like a gamble. Like, like we know it's available and accessible, but it's, it seems too good to be true. In fact, this invitation by Jesus can seem so scary because the question is, what if we blow it? Right? Like, like, like we do it all the time in our regular relationships. We mess up all the time. What happens when we do it to God? Won't he just go away? 
there's a real reality that there are moments in our lives where we go back to the cheap imitations of intimacy even though we've experienced the good stuff. And again, it's because you believe you cannot afford the real thing. And I'm still trying to figure this out for myself. Like, why would Caesar, I, why would I go after fake intimacy when I can be in the presence of someone who has shown that they love me fully and knows all that I am, the good and the bad? The only answer I've been able to come up with as I've been thinking about this, and this isn't just for today, I'm thinking about this for years, why would he offer this? Or why would I go after the fake stuff? It's because I think I'm as cheap as the intimacy I go for. It's because there are moments in my life where I feel like I'm as worthless as the intimacy I, I look for. I long for real stuff, but I think I'm just not worth it. There's this story in the Bible about a young man who leaves intimacy with his father in order to experience the fruits of this world. It's actually... Uh, it's the story that inspired the painting we saw earlier tonight. And this story, if you want to go there, you can, but I'll, I'll read it over us. It's Luke 15. And your Bibles, it's labeled as the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. And if you want to know what prodigal means, prodigal means someone who is spending money or resources freely and recklessly Think kind of like Justin Bieber circa 2014, DUI, you know? I'm glad someone thought that was really funny. I appreciate that. <laughs> and in this story, we find that there's, there's a father who had two sons. And the youngest son tells his father, listen, dad, I want my share of my inheritance, which pretty much means dad, die already. And for whatever reason, the father obliges and, and gives the son his inheritance. And then a few days goes by and he's gone. He's out of the house. He's left. And he's squandering the money left and right, left and right. Which has always left me kind of curious. Because if his dad had so much money to give him an inheritance, why would the son leave? Like, you ever wondered that? Like, if things are so good at home, why do people leave? Besides independence and turning 18, I get that. I just mean, like... Why would you, maybe his father wasn't good. I don't know. So then we find the youngest son spends all his money and eventually he has nothing left. So he lives in poverty. And then he, he eventually hires himself out to anyone who will take him. And so someone does take him and he starts working with pigs. And I, I know nothing about pig size. I've just seen it on TV, but they're pretty gross. There's not some place you want to be. Like, if you read about what pigs eat, they eat everything. That's gross. Like, I know I eat burgers and stuff, but just, anyway. Oh. And so he works with pigs. And then he becomes so desperate, and I, it always baffles me. He becomes so desperate that he looks at what the pigs are eating, and he goes, man, I wish I could eat that. I don't know if anybody's ever been that desperate or that hungry, but this man was. And so he devises this plan eventually to convince his father to take him back. Like he, he comes with this whole speech. He's like, okay, dad, 
I'm the worst. I don't deserve to be your son. Just treat me like one of your servants. Like that isn't even a good, of like, it's not even that like convincing of a speech, but he does it anyway. You see, what he knows is that his father isn't a mean father because he treats his servants quite well. So he knows his dad is kind and he banks on it. But even in his father's kindness, he thought he messed up too much to be accepted back as his son. So the son gets up, begins his march towards his father's house. And I, I want to read this verbatim for you from the story. This is what it says. Verse 20. The son arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. That's amazing. That whole scene's amazing. Like the son is not even close and his father knowing everything. He knows he would have been the recipient of saying, dad, I need you to die so I can get what's mine. He knows that his father rejected him. He knows that his son ran away. He sees his son gross, filthy, full of gunk and disgust. And yet nothing stops the father from running to the son. And it doesn't matter that the son reeked of pig and slop. It didn't matter that his son was dirty from head to toe. It says that he kissed him. Like we don't even kiss someone on the cheek if they got disgusting breath. But this father, after his son is with pigs, kisses him, holds him, and it says that he was full of compassion. He had every reason to be mad, and yet compassion fills the father's heart. That's unbelievable. And it's not just unbelievable to us, it's unbelievable to the son because what does the son do? The son creates this speech, his father comes to him, his father holds him, and he's just like, dad, uh, I, I don't deserve this. Um, I am the worst. Like, like, he actually recites the speech that he practiced this whole time because he cannot believe that he's being met with genuine intimacy. Just give me what's left. Make me like one of your servants, dad. The son was convinced that he was defined more by his mess than what but his father called him. But all the father saw was his son. Do you see yourself in this story? Because this is the human condition. We go out into the world and search for what only God the Father can provide. We think all we need are things from God, but this parable shows that when the gifts ran dry, who was left? Just the Father. There's this graphic behind me. Nope, go back. <clears throat> Thank you. Every month we have a different graphic that our creative team helped put together. You'll notice on the top is graveyard. 
This is all that cheap intimacy can provide you. Death. Emptiness. There's a phrase that says, death by a million cuts. You see, every time we accept cheap intimacy, we carve death into our souls. Cheap intimacy will lead us to live lives of performance, hiding, and we end up hurting ourselves and others up until the point where even when you're with people, you still feel lonely. Anybody ever felt that before? You're in a room full of people and you still feel like you're alone. But what our Abba offers us is real intimacy. The intimacy that leads to life. Switch it, please. That's what those gates represent. It's the type of intimacy that, that brings you into the kingdom of God. Because for God, he doesn't want you out there. He wants you at home with him where you belong. It's the kind of intimacy that, that knows exactly who you are and doesn't deny any of it. Behind the performances and, his facade, and our facades, our Abba sees us and all the dirt and the mess that we get on us. All he sees is his children. What was once a graveyard is now life. But let's be honest. Sometimes we've gone back to those pig pens of cheap intimacy, right? Like, let's just be honest with yourself. I'm not angry. I'm just, it's just like, I know that, like, there's part of me that even as I say this, I'm like, don't share, don't say, don't show. They don't need to see it. And you might feel that way too. I find it so interesting that Jesus says in the story that the son hired himself out. That's exactly what going back to cheap intimacies like. You throw yourself at the highest bidder and you settle for whatever it takes and it's like you're pimping yourself out. And so you sell yourself to the highest bidder, but God is here to tell you tonight that he's outbid everybody else. He's outbid all your forms of cheap intimacy. Yes, those pig pens at first can feel really good and then you realize, wait, 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 I, I'm, in, I'm literally in knee deep in rotten food and pig poop. And then you start noticing it's like it's everywhere. Like it just, the dirt just gets on you. And every time you attempt to wipe it away, it somehow spreads more and more. And so you try to get out, but it's like it's just, it's just heavy on you. You can't get the mud and dirt off. And eventually you just go, I guess I'm sane here. I guess this is my home now. Listen, you don't belong in a pig pen. That is not where the children of God go. And I don't care who you've sold yourself to in the past. I don't care what your pig pen looked like, whether it was one night stands or pornography or people pleasing or overworking or overeating or undereating or emotional neglect or physical abuse. Our Abba is calling us to come home. To come home and to be with him. And we get to come to him freely because even though you sold yourself to the highest bidder, God outbid everybody else and he paid through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ.
1 Corinthians 6.20 says that we have been bought with a price and that price was paid on the cross at Calvary. And so God's invitation for you and me tonight is to come back home. To come back home. It says, Jesus says this in in John 14.6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the only condition. And you don't have to meet it. Jesus does. That's why his whole mission was about to tell us about the Father and to allow us to be with him. So listen, if you're sitting here tonight and you are a disciple of Jesus, you can't blow this. You just can't mess this up. We are never too far, too dirty to be embraced by our Father. Jesus already took your sin on his shoulders, your sin, the past, your present, and your future. Even the one you're thinking about doing, even the one you did before you got in this room, the father saw it and he said, my son paid for it. Come home. And if you're not a disciple of Jesus, but you're moved by this type of intimacy, you're desiring this relationship to be real with you and the father, this is, this is what you do. Place your faith in Jesus and on his finished work on the cross. And on the other end, you're gonna hear your father's voice saying, come home, son. Come home, daughter. Just come home. There's this verse in Romans that has, I've been mulling over it over and over it. Romans 2, 4 says that the kindness of God leads us to Repentance. You see, sometimes we hear this thing of like, okay, so God keeps forgiving us, and so then why, why not just keep going back? God's always gonna take us back, so let's keep messing up, right? Let's keep diddling in that and diddling in this and diddling in this, and no. You see, well, every time we come home to the Father, he pours his kindness over us, so much so that we begin to yearn less and less for cheap intimacy because God's intimacy will create life in you that the moment you start heading towards that pig pen, you're like, whoa, That's death. Why would I ever want that? So come home, the Father says. God wants intimacy with you. And nothing is gonna change that. So we'll finish with this. How then do we move from cheap intimacy to true intimacy with God? Well, we can begin first with the Lord's Prayer. I would encourage you to start seeing this passage of Scripture not as empty words, but as a beacon of remembrance. When you start to try and hide from God or when you start to question his goodness, turn back to this portion of Scripture and let your heart be reminded that he is our perfect father and from that place, meet with him. Like run to him, don't just walk, run and be with him. You could even take this a step further and use this prayer as a template. Just, just pray it in your own words. Actually, that's what we're gonna do after this message is done as a community. And for those moments, because they're gonna come, those moments when you've gone back to cheap intimacy or when you're tempted to go back to that pig pen, remember what Christ has done for you. You'll be tempted to look at the dirt on your soul and think this is all you deserve, but Jesus has paid your debt, so run back to the Father. Accept his embrace and live at home with him. Here's what I've learned 
at the end of this. Children don't earn intimacy. They're lavished with it. We began this message wondering, how can I find it? How do I get it? This whole time, you've been searching for something that already found you. God has run to you and embraced you and wants you to come back home. Can you put that image one more time of the father and the son? This is what he offers. That's it. Today, tonight, God is our father. So may we learn what it means to accept his offer of intimacy. Let's pray. Lord, Father, I don't have many words for you tonight, not because you're not worthy of many, but because I don't get it all. I don't get how this invitation is for me. I don't get how this intimacy is offered so freely to me. I mean, I know it's through your son, Jesus, but part of me is like, this is too good to be true. Father, I ask that you would show us more and more, show me more and more what this relationship is to look like. That instead of me running to cheap intimacy, that I would long for your real intimacy that I would look forward to every time I get to meet with you. That literally I get giddy and, 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 and just like a kid just get so excited. Because you're on the other end just as excited to see me. Lord, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.